We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to a very special emergency podcast on Compliance Into the Weeds, where Matt Kelly and I take a preliminary look at the speech yesterday given by Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco to the ABA White Collar Institute, where there are major changes in white collar and FCPA enforcement announced. You really need to listen to this podcast, and I know you'll enjoy it. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and Matt Kelly and I are in for a rare emergency podcast on compliance into the weeds based upon remarks made by Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco at the ABA uh, from her keynote address at the ABA's 36th National Institute on White Collar Crime yesterday. So, Matt, um, there's rarely something that we both see as worthy of an emergency pod, but we both think this is one. Why do you think so? And maybe you could set up the talk a little bit. Yeah, sure. Uh, So, Tom, I do agree we should have a little emergency siren sound in the background for these kind of things here, that this speech that Deputy AG Lisa Monaco gave on Thursday kind of strikes me as like, it's the thing that we've all been waiting for. Everybody knew at some point the Biden administration would start to roll back the relaxations that we saw against corporate misconduct during the Trump administration. And now we're seeing it. So she gave this speech, a very long speech, uh, covered a whole lot of issues that I think will be really relevant to corporate compliance officers. Uh, One example, the department will now consider all of a company's prior misconduct when considering how to settle a current case up for resolution. Uh, So that would include any civil enforcement, any criminal enforcement, any regulatory issues you've had, whether or not that prior misconduct is related to whatever issue you are currently trying to resolve today. So if you were in a financial services firm trying to clean up an FCPA violation, the Justice Department might think about, well, what about your prior issues with money laundering or tax avoidance? Or have you had regulatory enforcement from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau? And if you've had a lot of that, that means you have a weak corporate culture. So we should take that into consideration as we are resolving your FCPA enforcement issue here in front of us today. That could be the new mindset of the Justice Department. Uh, She talked about compliance monitors. And she talked about um, more of being more forthcoming about individuals who might be involved in the misconduct. If you want cooperation credit, we're going to go back to the Yates memo standard, where yes, you have to give up all the evidence on all the people who were involved, not just those who were substantially involved. Uh, and then Tom, she also talked a bit about revisiting the wisdom of deferred or non-prosecution agreements for recidivist corporate offenders. And to be clear, she did not say we're going to cancel that. She said we're going to try and figure out if this makes sense or how we should treat recidivist offenders. But 
even just the idea that we might have no DPAs or no NPAs for repeat offenders, I think that is a sobering thought for a lot of legal departments. So there's an awful lot going on, and we can dig into any number of issues here, but that's the news. Right. So uh, I think it's wor- uh, worthy of us to go into the really the weeds on each one, Matt, because I think it means significantly uh, a different uh, calculus for both compliance officers, senior management, and a board of directors around oversight of compliance. And maybe we could start with, uh, I was struck by the, the Yates memo, um, or she didn't say Yates memo, but she said that we were going to return to prior guidance around mm-hmm. companies uh, identifying anyone who was involved with the uh, illegal conduct, not just those who were substantially involved. And this seems to me to be something that will bring uh, a lot more gnashing of teeth, but a lot more deeper and more expensive investigations, a lot more information turned over the government. And she even suggested that the department uh, through either its investigative services, through the FBI or other means, would take a, a much uh, broader and deeper role interviewing people inside of a corporation so that they could determine, being the DOJ, who was culpable instead of being uh, sur- simply given someone on a, on a platter. Uh, what struck you about sort of that part of her speech? Well, I could see that that's going to give a lot of companies, I don't want to say pause, that's not the right word, like, okay, well, we're not going to cooperate then. I don't think that'll happen. But I I was never fully clear on what substantially involved actually meant under the Brian Benkowski standard from the Trump administration. Um, So you are going to have to go and it'll give you pause about, well, geez, this is going to be an awful lot of work we'll need to do e-discovery work, interviews that we're going to have to do. Um, I also think that I'm curious to see how this quest to find all wrongdoers coexists with the much more mature whistleblower culture that is out there, that if your company is not doing the best it can there, you know, there are whistleblowers who are now much more sophisticated about how they can gather their own evidence and go directly to regulators or put it out on Twitter or something like that, that um, you're going to feel a lot of pressure to do this. And part of it is just the, the enormity of, geez, every single person who's involved, how are we going to do that? Um, but there are technical challenges here. Like e-discovery is not easy. You will need technology to figure out how to do it. Um, investigation protocols that, you know, how would you run a single interview to get more information about other people who might have participated? And how are you going to do this running multiple investigations all at once? Like your case management and investigation protocols are going to, I think, get really worked out. And you're going to have to develop some some good muscle strength in those areas. Um, so I, I can't say anybody's going to like it. But it is what it is, and uh, here we are. The other uh, question I had around this, Matt, was the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, which was uh, announced by Rod Rosenstein, had three components. Uh, One, self-disclosure, two, extensive Mm -hmm. remediation, and three, thorough cooperation. And if you had those three, there would be a presumption of a declination absent any uh, very bad conduct. Uh, now we have a fourth prong, which is you have to turn over all information on all of those who, who might have been involved. 
And that, uh, if that changes impacts the FCPA corporate enforcement policy and a prosecutor's calculus as to whether a company will have a presumption of a declination, that also seems to me to be a, a pretty big change going forward, which will lead to our colleague, our legal colleagues, uh, having some very serious conversations with boards of directors on uh, whether we self-disclose or not. I think that is valid. Um, I also, you know, I I would say maybe it's kind of a sub-prong of that third prong on full cooperation. They're raising the bar on what full cooperation is actually going to be. Um, And, uh, you know, I see the point that you're trying to make that maybe some corporate defense lawyers will start to say maybe we shouldn't self-disclose. Um, number one, if you don't self-disclose and subsequently this comes to light, I would say then you're going to be dead in the water. If you read through Deputy AG Monaco's remarks and what we've seen from other people in the Justice Department, like you can make that decision if you want. Just understand that is a grave decision to make. And if it backfires, it is going to backfire. Um, and like also, as I said, you have this more sophisticated internal whistleblower Um, capability at a lot of companies. There's going to be a lot of employees who are going to say, you aren't going to disclose this? Well, fine, I'm going to do it for you. I don't think that helps you anymore either. Your situation is not improved if you go and you make the decision not to self-disclose. So, uh, you know, they've always said, to the best of my knowledge, Tom, that the three prongs of the program are co-equal. I don't know that I believe that, frankly. I think if you were going to get any one part of that prong, any one of the prongs right, get the self-disclosure thing right, which the only way to get it right is to self-disclose. If you want to come up short on remediation or you come up short on cooperation, that's unfortunate. It's not the end of the world. But I don't know that the Justice Department would necessarily crucify you. I think that for serious misconduct, they would crucify you over not disclosing. So I still say... That is a, a weighty decision to take, and I, I wouldn't advise anybody to contemplate it. Let me now turn to point two, which was prior misconduct. And certainly we've seen prior anti-corruption or corruption misconduct be evaluated in subsequent cases, uh, recidivist, etc. But now we've had a substantial broadening of that to the point where uh, the DAG, uh, Monaco, I love that term, the DAG, I have to use it in, in every talk, um, we'll have uh, add an amendment to the department's principles of federal prosecutions of business organization, and will be directed to consider the full criminal, civil, and regulatory record. And you you specifically called out uh, you know tax uh, cases, but a multinational organization is going to have multiple uh, investigations, inquiries from regulators in states in the United States and in and countries outside the United States going on at all times. And asking the DOJ to evaluate that is one part of the prong, but also asking internally companies to have a resource which could answer that question and put that forward that information, I think, is uh, going to be equally challenging. Well, what strikes me about this idea of considering other types of misconduct is I get where the DAG, Miss Monaco, is trying to go with this. 
is that we're trying to define a culture of ethics and conduct, ethical conduct and good compliance very broadly, that you, the large company, you should be striving to do your best across all of your regulatory compliance and legal compliance obligations. And a culture of compliance and ethical conduct would, would show that. Um, now, I get that as a concept, but I wonder how many companies really have absorbed that in practice because for many companies, I think, they have tended to dwell mostly on FCPA compliance and anti-corruption. And they'll go around and say, we have a culture where we don't do bribery or we don't do uh, corrupt payments, fine, but what about regulatory violations, say, from the CFPB? Uh, what about, we have a culture against tax avoidance. Um, are you really going to say something like that? Uh, are you sure that you do have a culture like that? And I would also encourage compliance officers to think of the larger picture here. Not only will you maybe be evaluated on more types of misconduct that have happened in the past or might be happening right now, but those other enforcement agencies are chomping at the bit for more enforcement. Uh, Rohit Chopra, who is the new head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, he is gung-ho to enforce all sorts of regulatory issues through his agency. So it may be that you're going to see more enforcement across other parts of the corporate compliance world that suddenly make resolution of these cases more difficult because you know there's more enforcement generally. And Tom, I, I specifically do mention tax because I'm not sure how many compliance officers know this, but as say at like very large businesses, Fortune 100, Fortune 200, it is not uncommon that you could have an IRS agent set up and working with your tax department full time. Like they hang out in the office or in the, the virtual office or the Zoom call these days or however it goes. But the IRS has often reached out to large corporations because our tax code is a nightmare and said, we'll put an agent in with you to help you understand your tax compliance. But they don't work for the company. They work for the IRS. So there is this you know, pervasive ability to push enforcement across a lot of directions. And I just, I'm not quite sure everybody understands what that means for the, the culture of ethics and conduct or ethical conduct and good corporate compliance. It's going to become much more rigorous and expansive. We're going to have a quick message and then we'll be right back with more on Lisa Monaco's speech. Now let's turn to the monitorship issue. And here uh, the uh, Deputy Attorney General <clears throat> Monaco uh, said that she was rescinding the guidance incorporated into the Benchkowski memo, which might have suggested, quote, monitors would be the exception and not the rule, end quote. 
uh, it seemed to me uh, that was equally strong a change. Certainly, I felt it was portended by John Carlin's talk that that we uh, discussed on an earlier episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Uh, but what did you see on that prong? Uh, I thought that was interesting because it was one of the very few uh, points in Miss Monaco's very expansive remarks where she said, we are rescinding this prior guidance. I mean, she flat out said, I know you've been told this, now we're telling you something else. She sort of talked about it with monitors, and she talked about it with the Yates memo and cooperation. Um, I do think that is probably a good idea given the total complexity here because, Tom, I think the more, more important issue is that she is revisiting the question of how to handle recidivist offenders and whether they should be eligible for DPAs or NPAs because clearly the DPA didn't work. You did something else. Um, now, I think that abolishing DPAs and NPAs would, for recidivist offenders and pursuing corporate indictments instead, that's a big deal. A lot of companies would say, that is a hill we have to die on. We can't afford to get indicted or convicted. We will spend any amount of money to contest this. And I'm sure that the Justice Department understands that perspective. So I might, if you're looking for a middle ground where we do want to hold recidivist offenders much more accountable and really make them feel the heat, but we don't want to go to the mattresses with a corporate indictment and a trial, what is that vehicle? A compliance monitor is that vehicle. So if you then say that we're going to uh, default maybe to an, a monitor automatically if you're a recidivist offender, even if you still get a DPA, I could see that making sense. I think the more liberal use of compliance monitors is part of that bigger issue that the Justice Department is still trying to figure out of what do we do with the recidivist offenders and do we yank DPAs or NPAs. I'm still in the camp that no, I don't think they're going to do it because the consequences of that are so grave, but they're going to need to be able to do something else instead. A monitor is something else. A monitor is nobody's idea of a good time. And I've already had several people who have had compliance monitors tell me with just within the last 24 hours, like, oh, man, my monitor would have a field day with this. They're going to stick around. They're going to come back. They're going to raise their prices. You know, we could sneeze the wrong way, and maybe the monitor is going to say that we're doing something wrong. Nobody likes a monitor, but um, I do think that that might be a middle ground to some of the more draconian solutions for enforcement that might be out there. So that brings us to uh, DPAs and NPAs. And here, um, Deputy Attorney General uh, Monaco uh, said that the department would be looking at uh, questions such as, does the opportunity to receive multiple NPAs or DPAs instill a sense among companies that uh, the fines and penalties are just a cost of doing business? Are there other approaches that promote cultural and institutional changes, which might have a greater impact on deterring uh, misconduct. Are those, um, could those questions perhaps lead to yet another type of enforcement that we really haven't uh, considered yet? Uh, I mean, I, I suppose they could, but for the life of me, Tom, I'm, I'm not quite sure what else that they could be considered. Um, you know, I, I keep going back to the DPAs and the NPAs versus criminal indictments against a corporation and why businesses would be so against that. 
I think a good example of why they'd be so against that was Walmart. Now, any amount of money Walmart might have paid as an FCPA settlement, it was going to be chump change. You know, Walmart makes a billion dollars a day, more than a billion dollars a day. So what what Walmart was really frightened of wasn't that we'd get a large monetary penalty. It's that the government would give us a sanction where we can't participate in the food stamp program. That's what they, like, you, you couldn't have that if you're Walmart. Or if you're a healthcare business, you can't have an indictment because you're going to get booted off the Medicare Medicaid eligibility. And so that is the issue, I think, for a lot of companies. And like I said, that is going to be the hill that they're willing to die on is no indictment. Or if there's an indictment, we are going to go to trial. And if we get convicted, we're going to appeal and appeal and appeal. They will never accept that kind of a consequence because it constrains how they do business. Um, now, what's the other vehicle that is harder than a DPA or an NPA but isn't going to provoke that we're going to go to the mattresses response from corporate America? Like, I don't know. If you know, I'd love to hear it. Or if any listeners know, please give us a call. Well, uh, Matt, I was thinking about that question, and the only thing I could really come up with was the penalty levied on Wells Fargo by, uh, I think it was the Federal Reserve, but maybe it was the OCC, which limited their growth uh, for a period of years. And uh, so that, that they weren't prevented from doing business, but they were constrained, and they're still under those constraints. So, you know, perhaps uh, there are some other types of remedies uh, that could be considered. That is an interesting point. Uh, it was the Fed that did that. I think that is a very effective tool against financial companies in particular, but I'm not necessarily sure how effective that would be at a business operating company outside of financial services where they can do all sorts of other strategic things to keep on growing and keep on doing business. Um, but, like, I don't, I don't know what that would be. And I also suspect that uh, if the Justice Department tried that against an operating company, they would find themselves in court that uh, challenging the legality of that kind of a punishment pretty quickly. Um, I don't know. But, Tom, the only other point that I wanted to make about uh, Ms. Monaco's remarks was the one thing that she didn't talk about in her speech yesterday were monetary penalties. The, whole, the word penalties does not appear in her speech whatsoever. That did somewhat surprise me uh, because we do see the Securities and Exchange Commission, you know, just really close cousins for enforcement, uh, they've all already been talking about imposing monetary penalties more aggressively and uh, larger penalties and using them more often. I think we're starting to see that in the SEC enforcement. But Deputy AG Monaco did not utter anything about monetary penalties so far. And I wonder if that's subject for a future speech. I wonder if it's not on her radar, which I find that hard to believe. Um, or maybe they're not going to talk about it and just do it. But that was the other thing that stuck out at me. Matt, we're near the end of our time, but I have a deliciously inside baseball into the weeds question for you, which sure. is the following. Typically, we see major announcements uh, such as this one from the Department of Justice at one conference, the ACI National FCPA Conference, which is traditionally held the first week after Thanksgiving in Washington, D.C., and there may be remarks from the DOJ, the SEC, or other regulators announcing major policy changes or initiatives. These remarks were made, as we noted, at the National Institute on White Collar Crime uh, in October. Uh, could you maybe take us deep inside baseball and, and uh, hypothesize why that may be? 
Well, I will admit that I originally thought that uh, Deputy AG Monaco would make some sort of policy pronouncement like this at the ACI conference, uh, which you're right, I think it happens November 30th this year, and she is scheduled to speak, and I'm trying to finagle a press pass, uh, but she gave the speech today or yesterday at the White Collar Crime Conference, and when you think about it, I assume that may be because... She's not talking about FCPA enforcement here. She is talking about corporate misconduct of any kind, and that falls more under the white-collar umbrella, and this is a much broader sort of uh, white-collar crime discussion that's happening at the ABA. Um, the FCPA conference is still very good. If you are an FCPA nerd like me, then you know you should go, I think. It's very informative, and they've got a lot of people who are going to speak. Um, maybe we'll hear something about the FCPA corporate enforcement program next month. Maybe we won't. Maybe we'll hear something from somebody else. But I assume it's because she's casting a very wide net about corporate misconduct. It's not just FCPA. So the White Collar Crime Forum would be a better fit. So, Matt, uh, the FCPA Compliance and Ethics blog will be writing about this. May I assume Radical Compliance will be writing about this as well? We will indeed. I think there's a whole lot that we can ponder here. All right, Matt. uh, Great to catch up and uh, nothing like an emergency podcast. (laughs) Thanks, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. I'm going to link to Matt's blog post in our show notes, so check that out for additional information. I'd also like to tell you about the latest edition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Design Thinking in Compliance, where with my co-host Karsten Tams, we take a look at the social engineering tool of design thinking and how it can create greater efficiency and effectiveness in your compliance program. So check out Design Thinking in Compliance. It posts every other Wednesday. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.